It's awesome to have you here today. We are kicking into a new series, and no spectacular, overwhelming title. It's just called Revelation, all right? Revelation, and uh, we want to look at the last book of the Bible, and, and here's why. Uh, maybe you have even thought this. Maybe you've had conversations with some people about this. Maybe you've heard somebody ask a question in regards to this. Everything that's gone on in this year, from a pandemic that has hit worldwide and seemingly doesn't seem to be yet stopping, to the social unrest that has happened in our country, to division that is happening not only here but abroad, to conflicts that happen all over the world, to natural disasters that you hear about on a daily basis. And is it possible that you have heard or that you have even asked, is this the end of the world? Is this the end of the world? What is happening? What is going on? And so we decided that we wanted to take a few weeks and look at the book of Revelation. Now, here's the thing. I was just going to take about three weeks, okay? It was just going to be kind of a quick hitter thing, and we'll hit the last five books, you know, and uh, hey, we win, woohoo, and just go home, and we move on. And, uh, but, but the problem with that is this. Me speaking on the book of Revelation is kind of like the commercial. Have you seen this one? where the doctor is in operating on someone and the nurses are in the operating room and uh, the doctor says, spatula. <laughs> and they hand him a spatula. He kind of digs around. He's like, okay, good, close him up. And then he takes off his mask and the nurse says, you're not Dr. Stewart. And he says, no, but I did sleep in a Holiday Inn Express last night. And the tagline is, it won't make you smarter, but you'll feel smarter, Okay. So, last night, I stayed in a Holiday Inn Express. Um, no, I didn't do that, so I just wore a suit. Somebody say, why are you so dressed up? It makes me feel smarter, okay? <laughs> Talking about the book of Revelation. Because there are so many questions in regards to this, right? I mean, uh, even people that aren't unchurched, that don't necessarily do the church thing, you, you've heard of the book of Revelation. Most people have heard, you know, yeah, Genesis is the first book. And Revelation is the second book. And even those that have been in church all their lives, we know about Revelation. We know it talks about the end times, but we don't know what it says. I mean, it talks about seven bulls and seven trumpets and a fire-breathing dragon and a beast and the headless horseman. No, the headless horseman's not in there. Uh, I was just seeing if you were paying attention, and you weren't. Um, but it talks about all of these things that just are like, what does it mean? What does it mean for the world in which we live? What does it mean as far as eternity? What does it mean as far as heaven is concerned? And so we're going to take a little bit of time and hit the book of Revelation. And so I thought three weeks, we'll cover just the last five chapters. And since I didn't sleep in a Holiday Inn Express last night, I thought I need to go to the top of the food chain as far as Revelation is concerned and just ask a couple of questions. So I talked to a guy that is a family friend and a friend of Calvary, Dr. Ed Heinsohn. And he is the Dean Emeritus at the Rawling School of Divinity and still a professor of Bible and uh, one of the great thinkers and has written many books on the end times and Revelation. So I, I sent him an email. I said, Dr. Heinsohn, this is what I'm thinking. I want to do a three-week course and we just want to cover like the last five chapters or so. What do you think? And he emailed me back, and he's like, no, don't do that. Instead, go six weeks and cover the whole book. And don't try to do a deep dive, but just hit the major points. So that's what we're going to do. We are jumping in for the next six weeks to the book of Revelation. I told Kaylee, my daughter this, and Kaylee said, oh, goody, we get to talk about the end of the world and then Merry Christmas. <laughs> And that's kind of where it is, because here's the deal. When we're done with this series, you'll be four days from Thanksgiving. When we're done with this series, the church will be completely decorated for Christmas. When we're done with this series, Operation Christmas Child, the week where they bring all the boxes in and thousands of boxes come through our church, that will basically be about over, and we will be right into the Christmas season. Hard to believe, but here is why it is so cool and so appropriate. 
Because I think that as we get ready to celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ, we'll understand it and be more excited about it than ever before because we'll know a little bit more about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We'll be able to celebrate the Prince of Peace because we'll know even more about a coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's what's talked about in the book of Revelation. Revelation is so much how you view it. And if you are looking at Revelation through a prism of fear, then that's how the book is going to come across. But if you are looking at it through a prism and a viewpoint of faith, then that's going to make all the difference in the world. And that is how God wants us to see the book of Revelation. So, we're going to get into it today. Are you ready? All right, very good. I hope that you've got a Bible with you or that it's on your phone or something because we're going to cover a lot of Scripture. And if you are tuning in with us online, there is a Bible right there in front of you. You can just click that tab and it will come on and you can actually look and you just need to go to the end, right? I mean, if you've got a turn page Bible, just go to the back of it and you will be right where we need to be. If you've got it on your phone or your iPad or your Kindle, then notice with me, if you would, Revelation. And we want to begin talking from Revelation chapter. We're just going to start right at the very beginning. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And this is what it says. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says here. This is so cool. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So I guess I'm blessed because I'm reading it out loud. But I've got good news for you. Blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. This was so important that the message of Revelation was going to be sent to the churches of John's day and age. And not just those churches, but of course churches down through history, including ours. He keeps going, John, letting you know who the author is, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Grace and peace to you from he who is, who was, and who is to come. You're going to see this theme in the book of Revelation. Talking about what? A God who was, who is, and who is to come. You are able to rely on the faithfulness of God. Why? Because God was faithful before, he's faithful now, and he will be faithful in the future. And we rely on that faithfulness. We need that faithfulness. Because in days which are unstable for all of us, we need some stability. How good to know that the one who gave the message of revelation to John is one who was, is, and is to come. And we can rely on him. And from the seven spirits before his throne, we keep reading, we're verse 5. From Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Look, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. What's he talking about? He's talking about a second coming of Jesus. The first coming was to get us ready for the second he says, here he comes, and every eye will see him. Paul reiterated this in Philippians when he said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then, again, we hear the same message. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. There it is, again, God who was, God who is, 
God who is to come. If you have placed your faith in God for this day and age, you can place your faith in God for the age to come because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Have you noticed what's happening lately? Isn't this weird? I don't know whether you notice this or not, but the temperatures have started getting a little cooler. And I don't know about you, but at my house, leaves have started to fall from the trees. I'm like, what's going on? This never happens in October. Oh, wait. Yes, it does. It's happened every October that I've been alive and every October that you've been alive. The trees turn colors and begin to fall from the sky. We call the season fall. Hey, thank you so much. You're into it. We call the season fall. It's been that way since you can remember. Why? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We rely on his faithfulness to keep time on our watch because they know how it's going to be. It's been that way forever. They know the seasons are coming. You know what happens after fall. Well, let's not get into that. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. Now he's going to tell you why. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the, the, the testimony of Jesus. What's going on? John is exiled to the island of Patmos. He is being punished by the Roman government. For what? For the testimony of Jesus Christ. For preaching and teaching. For raising up people in the church. And they are tired of him and they are tired of his message. So they just said, hey John, go ahead and preach all you want. And they put him on the rocky island of Patmos where he wouldn't be a bother anymore. This was the second worst punishment. The worst punishment, execution. The next worst, exile. And John is in exile. You want to know what John is in? Wait a second. I think it's a word that you might have heard before this year. He's in isolation. Oh, we don't like that, do we? We didn't like that. We don't like the word. We don't like to think about it. We don't like what it did. We don't like what it's doing. We don't like to be isolated. But yet God is showing, even in his word, that sometimes I set you aside because I have a purpose. I have a reason. And here is John in isolation. And they say, you can't preach. You can't teach. And John says, yeah, but I can write. I can write. And he is now about to take down the last New Testament book, Revelation. In the Gospel of John, John talked about believe. In the epistles of John. So the Gospel of John is first, right? In the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Their rendering, their account of the life of Jesus. John gives us his in the Gospel of John. Then a little later, he wrote the epistles of John. John 1, John 2, John 3. Those are short little books near Revelation. But they're already done, and he wrote those for the church. And he said, believe in John. He says, be sure in the epistles of John. And now in Revelation, he's going to say, be ready. Be ready. Believe, be sure, be ready. John will hear the message of God the Father, who gave the message to Jesus Christ, God the Son, and he will write in the power and influence of God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. John experiences the Trinity of God in this revelation. There will sometimes be an angel who will communicate to John. He'll know that. There will sometimes be an elder. This is somebody who was, was before and is now up in heaven, and, and he's sent to communicate to John. We don't get any names. John just calls him an elder. And sometimes it will be Jesus himself that is communicating to John what is going to happen. But always, always it'll be the Holy Spirit that is speaking through John in this book. Now, he's going to use a lot of symbols, okay? A lot of symbolism is going to be part of Revelation. And that's the part where believers read it and they're like, oh, I have absolutely no clue what he's talking about. Because he does talk about seven bowls and seven trumpets. And what does all that mean? He'll use a lot of symbolism for a number of different reasons. Number one, because he'll use Old Testament symbols that the people that he was writing to in that day and age would understand. 
And he is correlating that Old Testament symbolism to a New Testament Christ and the fact that Christ will come again. And he uses that symbolism. But there's another reason why he uses symbolism, and that's this. He's going to have to actually somehow, probably in one form or another, this is going to go through the Roman post office. Okay? And he doesn't necessarily want the Roman soldiers to be reading through this and the punishment to come to the churches where it's going. He's already being punished. He knows what's happened to the apostles before him. John is the last one. All of them have been killed, martyred for the cause of Christ. He is the only one left. He doesn't want that same thing. He knows this message needs to get out. So in a sense, there's a code that the Roman, you know, they're going to look and say, a beast will come and rule the world. And they're like, yeah, whatever, okay. But he could say, a dictator's going to come and rule the entire world. That would be like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We need to show this to Caesar. So John will use this symbolism. But here's another thing. You have to understand that John is writing 2,000 years ago about things that are happening today and into the future. He has no cognitive understanding of what a tank is. He has no cognitive understanding of what a stealth fighter is. So he is endeavoring to describe some of this stuff as best he can. And you will read some of that in the book of Revelation. You'll see some, some descriptions that seem to have different animals as a part of it. And you cannot help but picture that in your head. But if you could take yourself and put yourself back 2,000 years ago when John is writing this and try to figure out how would you describe some of the things that are happening today. And you could only use what you knew and what you had experienced. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. Another interesting thing to note before we jump into a little bit more of it here is that Paul, the apostle, he wrote letters to seven churches. Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica. Oh, I was so close. And Colossae. Colossi, I got it. Those are the seven churches, the seven letters. He wrote letters to these seven churches. And he wrote different letters. In fact, sometimes for some of them, right, he, he wrote more than one. The church at Corinth got 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Thessalonica got 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Letters to seven churches. John is instructed to write one letter to seven churches, the same letter. He's gonna have to transcribe this seven times because God wants this message to go out to all seven of the churches, all seven of the major hubs of Christianity at that time. And just as last week we talked about the fact that in the last few hours of Jesus' ministry with his disciples at what was called the Last Supper, he prays for them and he prays for you as well. So in the book of Revelation, the message that is given to the churches back then is a message that's given to our church today. It's a message that God still wants to send to his church today. And so as we look at these churches, and that's what we're going to do today just to wrap up our time what is the message that he's trying to send to the church? And understand that the church is not four walls and a roof, right? Has not this pandemic proved that God's church is far more than a building? God's church is people. And he moves through people. So what is the message that he's trying to share with us today? On the Lord's day, it says in verse 10, I was in the spirit, heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. Who is he describing? He is describing a resurrected Jesus Christ. John would say in the book of John, in the opening gospel, as he's trying to describe Christmas, right? I mean, Luke gives us the best account. Matthew maybe gives us a little more. But John, he should have given us the best account because he had Mary under his roof for a while. And I'm sure they must have shared some stories. But you want to know what John says? John says that into the world came the light of the world. That's how he describes the birth of Jesus. That's how he describes Christmas, that Jesus was the light of the world. And what was Jesus' first message when he began to share and preach in his earthly ministry? He said, you are the light of the world. And now here is one in radiant brilliance, shining like the sun, and he stands amidst seven golden lampstands, seven bright lights. How many churches is John writing to? Seven. So these lampstands represent each of those churches. Here is the light of the world in the midst of those that he has commanded to be the light of the world, and he has a message that will make us even more brilliant than before. The sights that he gives to us are the son of man, the lampstands, the sounds that he gives to us. He says his voice was like rushing waters. How many of you have ever been to Tequamnam Falls or Niagara Falls? Let me see your hands. Have you been there? Okay. I don't know about you, but one of the things I noticed, I could hear the falls before I saw them. Right? especially Niagara. I mean, I had been to Tequamenum Falls, and they were awesome, but we had the chance a number of years ago, Lori and I, and I think Kaylee was with us, we went to Tequamenum Falls. And I remember the first time we left our hotel and we started to walk towards the falls, and all of a sudden you just hear this overwhelming, rushing water. And the closer you get to it, it is all you can hear. And that's, John says, what the voice that's what the voice was like. Rushing water, a waterfall, mighty, thunderous. And the voice, just like the waterfall, draws you towards it. So that voice was drawing John. And he says that from that voice, there was a sword. Remember that Paul the apostle, when he was describing the word of God, to Timothy, his spiritual son, what did he say? He said it is like a sword, a two-edged sword, and it can pierce, pierce our hearts. That's the word of God. And John is now seeing this and hearing this, and he realizes he is about to experience something incredible. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. There it is again. I am faithful. I am the one who was at the beginning and will be at the end. I'm the first, the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, John. You know that. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There are angels that are among each of the churches. There are angels that God has sent to protect his church, to be a part of his church. And he says, those are the stars. That's what that represents. And these lampstands are the churches. And this is the message that I have for you. And he jumps in Revelation chapter 2. And he begins to share with each church a specific message. And this is what he says. Revelation chapter 2 verse 2. I know your deeds. He's talking to the church of Ephesus. This is the first church. 
I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and, catch this, remove your lampstand from its place. Wow. You talk about a message right out of the gate. He shares with the church of Ephesus, look, you're good, man. You've done some good things. You, you, you have seen those which are false, and you've turned them away. Ephesus was the church that Paul founded. They have an incredible heritage. Paul was a pastor there. John, the guy that's right, this was a pastor there. Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. And yet Jesus says, I've got a problem, and here's what it is. You've lost your first love. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The church that lost compassion. Church looked good on the outside, but their heart wasn't in it. James, half-brother of Jesus, when he wrote his New Testament book, he said that faith without works is dead. But Jesus comes along in Revelation to say works without love just as harmful. Just as harmful. So he says, here's what you got to do. You got to remember where you started. Remember what it felt like at first. The second thing is you have to repent. When you see where you were and you see where you are, you realize the steps that are needed to get back there. And then the third thing is repeat. Do what you used to do and keep doing it. Keep doing it. Remember, repent, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. There you go. Why? Because Jesus has this warning. If you're not going to love, I don't need your lamp. I don't need your lampstand. I can accomplish what I need to without you if you are not going to love. They were all about seeking after the truth. But not the truth in love. So Jesus says, you've got to get back to your first love. You know what I'm talking about when I say that, don't you? I mean, we have that in relationships, right? Why, why, why do we have vacations called second honeymoons? Because you're trying to rekindle the first honeymoon, right? You got to get back to that first love. We have relationships sometimes with friends, you know? Some of you have relationships with like a friend, uh, maybe a best friend, and in high school, in college, or, or when you were first married, you know, they were, you, they were your maid of honor, or best man, whatever, best friends, and when you see them, you pick up, right, right where you left off, but then you have other friends who want to be your friend on Facebook, and you're like, why? Why are you requesting a friend? I am not your friend. I wasn't your friend in high school, and I want to be your friend now. It's lost its luster, right? We got to rekindle. Listen, just like we have to rekindle relationships sometimes with people, so we have to rekindle the first love that we had for the Lord. And the problem is that the longer we know Jesus and the longer our relationship is with him, the more layers of life can kind of get over it. And we just start doing things because, well, it's the thing to do. And we forget the why behind it. The fact that it was all about loving him. Why? Because he first loved us. He says to the church right out of the gate in Ephesus, you've got to get back to loving. 
That's the command I gave when I came. That doesn't add to the other ten. It actually supersedes the other ten. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. The next church he talks about is Smyrna. In verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. You want to know what he says about Smyrna, a bustling, beautiful seaport where a church has been planted? He has no, no condemnations for them. Nothing wrong. Only commending them for their faithfulness and telling them to stick with it. This was the church of the faithful and the fearless. He says, just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Stick with it. How often are the times when something happens in our life and we're just kind of ready to stick our faith aside because, well, God, you didn't step in. You didn't come through. And yet he's telling them, look, I know you've been through persecution. I know you've suffered. Some of you are going to be imprisoned. Some of you will be taken right to the point of death. Hang in there. Hang in there because you will receive the crown of life. Continue to be faithful. Continue to be fearless. The next church he talks about is Pergamos. In verse 13 he says, You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Nevertheless, I've got a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food sacrificed to idols and they committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There were some and they were actually groups of people that would try to add to or take away from the gospel of Christ and in the early church, many warnings had to be given to the people because sometimes they would get swayed in that direction. That happens right here. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I'll fight the battle with the sword of my mouth. What's he saying? It'll just take a word from me and the battle will be over. You remain true. Repent. Pergamus was Rome's provincial capital. And it was a major cultural hub that even housed a library. Yet God says it is Satan's city. It was filled with paganism and filled with idolatry. This is the church of compromise. And God warns about it. Don't compromise. He uses an Old Testament story. We're like, well, who's Balaam? Who's Balak? You'd have to read the Old Testament and understand that Balaam was a prophet for the people of Israel who worked for the wrong side. Balak, a king who knew he was going to be overtaken by the Israelites, got this Israelite prophet to share with him how he could entice the Israelites in and maybe work out a deal with them. Wasn't what God had desired. Wasn't what God wanted. But he was able to work it through Balaam. He enticed the Israelites. He said, hey, come and worship. In fact, here's the deal. We'll give you a feast. And here's the other deal. We have found that actually you're going to have sex with worship. And the Israelites were like, okay. Sounds like a great time. And they fell into this trap. Because they what? Compromised. And so he comes to this church and he says, you, you are a church of compromise. And if you are not careful... You will find yourself under the same judgment that the Israelites found themselves in when they fell for what Balaam and Balak tried to do. Thyatira, verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. Nevertheless, 
I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. You can tell this is a big thing with God, right? This is the second church now he's mentioned this to. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Just hold on to what you have until I come. What's going on here? This is the corrupt church. And again, God is using symbolism, okay? Was there some problem with immorality and that kind of thing? Yes, but he's not talking about individuals per se. He's not definitely talking about someone named Jezebel. He's using that name. He's using that story from the Old Testament because even back then, nobody was naming their daughter Jezebel, okay? Nobody was using Jezebel. As soon as that first Jezebel was gone, pretty much people just kind of ruled that one out. And when he uses that term, the, Israel, the Jewish people understand who he's talking about and what he's talking about. And he is saying, don't be led away by a Jezebel. But some of you have. And you need to understand that I search the hearts and minds. And the name is symbolic. And here's the thing. Ephesus, the first church, was failing in its love, but it was able to judge false doctrine. Thyatira was moving forward in love, but they were failing to judge false doctrine. And so Revelation says both extremes must be avoided. It is not only lost sinners that need to repent. It is disobedient Christians. Let me say that again. It is not only lost sinners that need to repent. It is disobedient Christians. And that's the warning that comes in this passage. The next church is Sardis. Sardis is situated atop a plateau. They're known for their woolen garments. They could sew a sweater with the best of them. And this is what it says in Revelation now chapter 3 verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis. And I'm pretty sure that at this point, John was like, I don't know if I can write this. My mother would be so upset. There are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. There's a few of you who have not pooped your pants yet. All right, just kind of make it. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. What is going on in Sardis? This is a church that's plugged in, but they don't have any power. The church is open, the people are there, but there is no power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know this? Part of the reason we know this is because as Jesus talks to this church, he is warning them, some of you are going to church and you really think that because you come to church and because you obey the law and because you do these nice things that somehow you are written in the Lamb's book of life that you are going to make it to heaven, but that's not it. You don't have any Holy Spirit power. And I cannot tell you how many hundreds of thousands of people there must be who will be in a church today, who will be in a church this weekend, but they have no idea the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives because there's never been that moment when they have said yes to the invitation of Christ, to invite Him to come in and be their Lord and Savior. That was John's first message. Believe, believe, 
believe. It is not wrapped up in your behavior. It is not in how many good things you do. And if it is, then I need you to come and tell me how many it is. Because I want to make sure I've done enough. But you'll never find that in Scripture. Wouldn't it be a shame to get to heaven and they tell you, oh, I'm so sorry. If only you'd have done three more good things, you'd have made it. You just missed it by three. Oh, well, better luck next. Well, no, I guess there's not a next time. No, it was never about behavior. Our behavior is changed because we believe. And when we believe, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and we are promised a place in God's heaven because we have believed in His Son, Jesus Christ, and His Spirit has come and sealed our hearts. And that's why there's power in the church, because the people in the church have the Spirit of God in their lives. And he says to this church, there's too many of you, and I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and you're not even going to know, and you're not going to be ready, and your name's not in the book. Two churches and we're done. Then he talks to the church of Philadelphia, and he says, nice job on the flyers and the eagles. And No, that's not in there. I just thought I'd throw that in and see if you were awake. He says, I know your deeds. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you've not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they're not, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Don't you sometimes wonder, there is no part of me that believes that God caused this pandemic that we are going through. But is it possible that he is using this time and using this pandemic and using all of these things that are happening in our world to try to turn people's focus and attention back to him? He says to the church of Philadelphia, it's interesting, all he does is commend them. There's no condemnation. There are no commands. He says, keep going. Keep doing it. Keep working. I have opened a door for you, and I'm the only one that can shut it. Just keep walking through the door. And we have opened doors for us as the church of Christ as you being part of the body of Christ, you have opportunities that come your direction, opportunities that God gives to you, and nobody can shut that door except for God. Keep walking through those doors. Keep walking through those doors. Keep your eyes on the prize. Make the main thing the main thing. And he says to the church of Philadelphia, I've opened the door and you keep walking in. Lori and I had the chance a couple weeks ago to go to the Ark Experience down in Kentucky. What? The Ark Encounter. Excuse me. It was an experience that we had at the Ark Encounter. And it's down in Kentucky. And you pull into the parking lot and you get out and the first thing you do is go, holy cow, that thing's huge. They built this ark under the specifications of what it is in the Bible. And it is just huge. And we walked in and we walked it out. And they, they take some artistic expression. And they tell you that right at the beginning. But there's also a spot where you go and there's this huge door. And I'm reminded of the portion in Genesis where it says that God was the only one who could close it. And when the time came, he closed that door. He opened the door, he closed the door, and he'd be the only one that could reopen it when it was time for them to leave. God opens the door for us. He opens the door for us. And we need to make sure that we are walking through. This is the faithful church with faithful people and a faithful program they keep walking through the doors of opportunity that God gives. So God says, I'm going to keep that door open. You keep walking through. You keep walking through. And finally, the last church is Laodicea. Laodicea.
Sometimes in life when we face situations like we face this year, fear sees the obstacle, but faith sees the opportunity. And while Philadelphia seized on those opportunities, the church in Laodicea, unfortunately, all they could see was an obstacle. And so he says to them, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, and you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, but because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Pretty strong, isn't it? You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see actually this city, Laodicea was known for a healing solve that they would have for people's eyes. He uses that reference to this church. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And then he shares these words, and we close with this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. This church was financially wealthy, but spiritually bankrupt. And when God blesses, he wants us to be Christ-centered in our stewardship. This is actually called the foolish church, the lukewarm church. They claim to be clothed in righteousness, but God says, no, you are spiritually without any clothes. The only way you can clothe yourself in righteousness is to clothe yourself with me, he says. So I stand at the door and I knock. Maybe fewer believers here than at any other church. And so he reminds them, I'm knocking. I am knocking at your heart's door. An invitation to trust Christ, to enter into relationship with him. That's the first step. What about you? Do you need to open that door and let him in? That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. It's why he rose again. Because he wanted a relationship with you. And Revelation is about to tell us about an eternity that he is preparing for those who place their faith and trust in him. A place there where there won't be any more tears, no more fear, no more crime, no more death, no more despair a place of perfection that he has prepared for those who open the door and let him in. So what about you today? Are you willing to make that decision? Are you willing to open your life's door and allow Christ to come in and start a relationship with him? It's not about religion. I mean, how many times can you hear it over and over to every church? Hey, you've done some good stuff, but look, you're still lacking. It is about a relationship with a God who loves us. Enough to send his son to die on a cross to save us from ourselves, from our sin, from our past. He says, I could take care of all that if you will just open the door and let me in. Bow your heads together with me in prayer. And as we close today, I just want to ask you, those of you that are here with us on our campus, those of you that are watching with us online, is it possible there's never been that moment when you have invited Christ to come into your life, where you have accepted him to be your Lord and Savior? He wants to forgive you today of your sin. He wants to make you new in his sight. He wants you to become a new creation. And in fact, his word says that's what happened. When you invite him in, Old things are passed away. All things become new. What about you? 
If you want to make that decision, I want to invite you right now to pray this prayer in your heart after me. Here with us, online, wherever you might be watching, I want to invite you to pray this. There's nothing magical about the prayer. You can pray your own prayer, but Romans 10.9 says that if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. And that's what I'm inviting you to participate in today. If you want to know that he lives in you and you want to know that your sin's forgiven, you want to know that your name is written down in a reservation for heaven, I want you to pray this prayer. You don't need to say it out loud. He'll hear you. But just simply pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I do believe you love me. I do believe you came and died and rose again for me. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin and save me for Jesus' sake. With our heads still bowed in prayer, if you prayed that prayer, would you just quietly, quickly, just between you, me, and God, would you just slip up your hand and then put it down? Say, that's me today, Billy. I prayed that prayer. Yeah, God bless you. God bless you today. I prayed that prayer. I invited Christ to come into my life. If you're online, there's a little tab that appeared on your screen it actually allows you to just kind of click the button and raise your hand that says, today, I committed my life to Christ. I may not know who you are. I might not even know your name, but God does. And you can be sure that we'll be praying for you. I'm praying that God will do something tangible in your life, even in these next few days, to help you realize the importance of the decision you just made today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. Your word is like a two-edged sword. And it pierces through all of the layers of life that so oftentimes get in our way. And Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. Sometimes difficult for us to understand, but Lord, as we look in these next few weeks, I pray that it will penetrate our heart with the understanding that believers win. Believers in you win. That you are creating a place that there is a, there is a place called heaven that you have prepared for those that believe in you, for those that choose you, for those that love you. And we thank you for that. I thank you today, Lord, for people who've made a decision. I do pray, Lord, that in the next few days, something tangible will happen that will help them realize the importance of the decision they made today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for meeting with us here today. We give you all of the praise and all of the glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.